All right, so in this episode, we are going to talk about white supremacy and white supremacists. Isn't that fun? Yeah. Uh, white supremacists are terrible. So this episode may involve some bad words if they come up. And uh, just going to talk about some of the language that they have used. Not so much the slurs, but some of the subtle things. The ways you can recognize it when they're using white supremacist language online, you may not be aware of it. How it's changed and evolved in the past decade or so. Looking ahead to where it might evolve in the near or far future. And what the hell we can do about it. Because these people need to be stopped. Alright? Enjoy. So tonight I am talking to Maureen Kasi, um, a student at University of Colorado in linguistics, a graduate student, sorry, at University of Colorado at Boulder. I'm just going to say it four times instead of getting it right in the first try. <laughs> and uh, focus on social cultural linguistics. Thanks for joining me tonight, Maureen. Thank you. Um, so we are going to talk today about just just a fun topic, white supremacy on the internet and in other places. Before we get into some of the questions I have for you about it and the language involved, can you tell me a little bit how you got interested in this, especially as a person who, far as I can tell, appears to be white themselves? Um, and I mean, I don't mean to say that as a joke. I mean, it's important because, um, I, uh, it's people's racial identity, um, is really important to figure out. I think it's hard to be involved in most anything in a really positive way without figuring that out. So I've been talking to people a little bit more about their racial identity. And so now I'm asking you about how you got interested in this yourself. Yeah, well, um, yes, I am. Um, I'm a white woman. And I also agree that this is crucial. I think one of the ways that white supremacy gets spread through academia is that is through the ways that we are asked not to bring our identities to the forefront, or if we do, to only bring our most marginalized identities to the forefront, because, you know, that's what makes me valuable as a scholar, that um, I'm a woman, and that I'm queer, and these other things, and I don't try to bring in as often, look, I'm white, I, I have um, a bachelor's degree, and a master's degree, there are all these other dimensions of, of privilege that I have that also inform my analysis, and so if we're going to think about any system um, and any system of learning, they're all infused by race. And so I appreciate you bringing that up right off the bat. Um, I also think race is important because I think it's necessary for people in linguistics and anthropology, especially white people in linguistics and anthropology, to, to take these tools that we've learned and use them to reflect on ourselves and the ways that we as institutional actors uh, perpetuate these systems in which, you know, we are the, you know, objective observers and our objects of study are almost always 
people who are marginalized, especially people who are racially marginalized. Sorry, but before um, going into what got me into this, um, so I've always been very online. (laughs) And the reason that I got interested in the alt-right I think ultimately was because had I been born in even slightly different circumstances, I think I would have been in the alt-right. And that's disgusting. Um, It's something that makes me very sad. But when I look at the way that my thinking developed over the course of my life and the kind of background I came from, which was almost an entirely white town, everyone was, you know, white, upper middle class and Christian. And there were things that I was very willing to believe because I was not, one, I, I did not have an understanding of like American history, um, especially that I do now, but that these things really start on a low level. White supremacy starts on a really low level. It starts with conversations that without any context make sense. Like, uh, why is it that there's a gay pride and a black pride? but no white pride. You know, it starts with these seemingly simple questions that project an image of the world that completely ignores history and contemporary social relations and all of these things that, you know, have snowballed into the, into the poop storm that we're in right now. And um, so I got into this specifically because I was already interested in like the men's rights movement online. And I was interested in like um, involuntarily celibate chat forums. And it always really interested me how people who um, are institutionally privileged on every level, like middle class to upper middle class, cisgender, heterosexual, white dudes, how can they construe a universe in which they are the ones who are oppressed when they're, when that is just patently not the truth. And it got me into this larger, like a larger body of research about ideologies, not just language ideologies, but um, how ideologies impact our behavior and our social systems, especially on the internet, where you don't exactly know who you're talking to all the time. And so it could be anyone. And in the alt-right, um, especially on, on websites like 4chan and 8chan, you're, you're totally anonymous, which gives you the option to interact with people however you want. And it gives people the option to interpret you however they want, which makes it very easy to um, push their talking points to the mainstream. Um, yeah. Um, it's interesting. I, um, I need to stop myself from getting off topic because then it will last forever. But I think of it the same thing. If it had, it's not so much the environment of the era, but like, uh, had I been born, I don't know, 10 years later, let's say, like I'm 33. So if I'd been born in 96 instead of 86, um, I think about like the men's rights stuff. And I, I mean, they're also, you know, kind of racist and all that, but ignoring that for the moment, like uh, I can see how I might've gotten into that. Uh, And because, you know, a lot of teenage boys are just, dumb in a lot of ways but I had some friends who had they been stirred up by a lot more internet stuff might have gone a lot farther they were mostly just saying dumb nonsense when we were 15 you know and as far as I know nothing you know untoward occurred but um I said far as I know I don't know 
But uh, had we had, you know, I mean, the internet existed, but like, like if we had, we had like this. Um, I don't know what would have occurred because, you know, if you take it from a purely compassionate, you know, standpoint before people do anything, you know, a lot of those people are like lost in some ways, which I'm sure you're going to whatever. But um, and you know, I was just sort of a 15 year old boy who didn't know what was what, and I could very easily have been swayed into a circumstance where I thought I was aggrieved and been really entitled and could have it could, it could have been bad. So I'm just you know, it, it's sort of similar to you, where although I'm focusing on on race as opposed to something where I have more relative privilege, just for reasons I can get into later, um, it it's another, so thereby by the grace of God go up, right? You know, I'm right. just like, I just got lucky there, you know? <laughs> and I'm glad that I did. So I'm trying to, to use the good fortune I've had in that respect to do something about it. So on this subject then, um, how you got, you sort of, you sort of talked a little bit about how you got into it, but um you know what made you really focus in on alt-right and other related things on the internet um because we all know it's out there uh we all you know it's in the news and all that but what made it particularly compelling to you and then you can just sort of keep going into like what some of the language is that people may not be aware of so Actually, I think like um, what interested me about uh, this particular group of people, I'm hesitant to say a group even because it's really extremely nebulous, but, um, but the, the, the class that propelled all this for me was a class on um, taboo language. It was called Bad Words. And um, I was already tracking all these other kinds of internet movements, as I had said before. And um, I had, I think I had gotten pointed to the alt-right from, I think I had started around incels. Um, But when I was trying to write this paper for this class, um, I had this hypothesis that um, there were going to be, that that this reactionary right-wing movement was going to actually like lean in and use taboos as a way to like shock the American public. So I thought like, this is just going to be, if you've seen some other subreddits, like, oh God, I'm not going to, I'm not going to put out the names of these subreddits, but like there are some subreddits that have like really terrible content. I thought it was going to be like that. But when I went in, I noticed that everyone wrote in a very polite way, in a very academic way, and they never ever used any slurs, but they would use a lot of acronyms. Um, Like I would, I saw this acronym everywhere, um, JQ, JQ. And I, you know, I ended up having to dig a little deeper and it's the Jewish question. And so like that, that phrase rarely ever appeared, especially on my Reddit data. Um, And then when I went, so at first I was looking at Reddit, which if you think about what Reddit is as a website, it's extremely popular. It's also what I would call like a more public facing website where there's a lot of interfacing with um, normies, as we might say. Um, And so as I went kind of deeper into 
the kind of the core of the alt-right movement. So as I started visiting 4chan and 8chan, and I also went to like the Daily Stormer and all these like neo-Nazi websites and looked in their comments section, like, because I was trying to get an idea of like what the core of the movement, how they talked. And that's where I found all the stuff I was looking for. Um, slurs everywhere, just absolutely violent, disgusting language. And so what I noticed was um, that, you know, there's, there's, um, you know, they start with people in the shallow end or, and they move deeper and deeper as you go. It's just like um, with a cult. There's a lot of similarities with cult type thinking here where, you know, when you're talking about Scientology, you don't start with Xenu, you start with emotion tests that, you know, talk about the basic facts of human personalities. And then you go deeper and deeper and deeper. And with the alt-right, it starts at this very light level, like how come, um, well, let me think of a good example. I'm trying to think of things that, you know, sound at least like talking points I've read, but um, again, like this, you know, why isn't there a white pride? Why is that not allowed? So pointing out these things as though um, they're hypocritical because they appear hypocritical on the surface. And then you go deeper and deeper and deeper. And then it's like the Jews did it. <laughs> and that's, I mean, that's honestly the end point of a lot of conspiracy theories. And if I can just add this, because um, cults are like a, cult thinking is a, a an interest of mine, I guess. Um, but there's also an interesting overlap between alt-right politics and the flat earth movement. Um, there's an insult among flat earthers called globe cuck. Um, and they've, they took the word cuck from the alt-right. And so there's this kind of weird, like shared um, alternate reality, conspiratorial type thinking that branches these groups that really like, I would not Im imagine is overlapping initially. I'm trying to put together the logic of the flat earth. Maybe it was supposed to be the Jews that told us that the earth was round. I'm just trying, I'm yeah. trying to put the, the like train together. Yeah, Please I mean, don't take me out of context, listeners. I'm not saying that that is the case. I'm just trying to put the, the logic together such that, you know, yeah, I don't know. I, uh, because sometimes, what do they say? If you go to certain extremes, they, they tend to meet like a horseshoe or something like that. Yeah. Uh, you know, you're just like, wait, that doesn't make any sense. And it, 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 like, it makes so little sense that it makes as little sense as another I mean, one, once you're willing to let go one thread of reality, suddenly they all start breaking away. And like, once you just decide that one um, tenement of the world we live in is just simply not true. Um, so for d example, deciding that the government doesn't exist um, or doesn't ex exist as a sham entity, then all of a sudden, all these other things are suddenly able to be true. And then all of a sudden, you know, the earth is a flat plane with uh, a, a giant glass sphere over the top. <laughs> like it's, it's wild. I um, I had a friend who, I don't know what he's doing now. I wouldn't be surprised if he was out there doing this stuff. Um, and I met him on a vacation, so I don't know. But like, um, like I went to his house and he lived deep, deep Brooklyn. And so it was like a long subway ride, which is, you know, a very challenging thing for us here, you know, in New York, just a very long subway ride. And uh, we go to his house and uh, he lived with his dad, and his dad wasn't there, and we went, and we were having some drinks, and, you know, like, at one point, the door to his dad's room swings open, and, you know, what, what do I care? And there's, like, there's, like, a, like, an SS flag in there, and I'm just, like, what? Okay. <laughs> and he's, like, <laughs> and he goes, my dad likes history, 
and, and I'm just like, well, I'm already in his house. So what am I going to do? Uh, and oh, then, God. and I was just, so then I just sort of like me and my friend who's also black, we were just like, okay. Uh, <laughs> and then finally, like at one point he goes in there and he brings out a helmet that his dad has. And I'm just like, what are you doing, man? <laughs> what, is, what is this? I did not go back to his apartment. Um, Not, oh my gosh but like it but it was weird because like he knows we're black right so i'm just like the the cognitive dissonance yeah you know trying to put but you know what what happened a lot of part of why i got particularly interested in examining racism is because things like that would happen people who were very clearly could you stop chewing this please <laughs> please just stop um who were very clearly having some sort of antipathy towards either a group that I'm in or another group would reveal these things to me. And I'm just like, what, why are you telling me? And I realized it was this sort of, um, you know, the individualism thing, you know, the whole, like, it was implied that you and my friend who is from a similar background, we both went to Ivy League undergrad schools and all this stuff, like we were acceptable ones. So we can tell you what we think about the rest of them <laughs> and, yeah. and it was sort of and, and like I got to a point where I just started I got mad that that like because this is the way the society is is they they want you to be happy no don't start playing with that they want you to be happy that you're one of the special ones but I got mad that there was the concept of people being special in the first place um, yeah that's how I got into really a lot of looking at this stuff um it was the thing that I was going to say. Right, so how did this stuff really, like, evolve, you know, into where it is now? I mean, we the websites themselves evolving, well, that's just how the internet works. But, I mean, like, the, the fact that they just, you know, how, how they chose these words. Was there any, like, mm. history to how the words developed? I'm sure there is, but, like, how they start, aside from the slurs, we know about the slurs, but, like, how, how did these, you know, particular phrases come to be what they are or the acronyms or whatever yeah so there are kind of um two parts here which is that i'm not even i say the alt-right because that's something that's recognizable to people but i'm not even really sure how many how many members or people who imagine themselves being members call it the alt-right anymore because i'm listening to you i'm putting it away oh yeah for sure (laughs) um so the main I've got like a little bit of a historical review too, but to start with, um, the term alt-right was coined by Richard Spencer. Um, You might know him as the Nazi that got punched um, in that video. And the term alt-right itself, like it evokes um, some imagery, right? Like maybe like alt-rock, it implies something that's kind of different and edgy um, and away from the status quo. And that was really how, especially in the earlier parts of the movement, there were all kinds of think pieces across um, all sorts of like, not just websites, but um, in newspapers and magazines as well, um, talking about how like there's this hip, stylish, fun, like taboo breaking uh, group of of lovable ruffians called the alt-right online. Um, And after, after Charlottesville, um, especially where like they they were trying to, that was the alt-right's first attempt to be taken seriously in the public eye. And it was, it didn't work. 
Um, you know, like people still like associate tiki torches and, you know, uh, Trumpy golfing outfits with, with this movement. Like, and when you look at what they're trying to do, they're trying to present themselves as the kind of symbolic opposite of like Antifa, where people kind of dress more casually or in black. And they're like, no, look, I've got my slick little haircut. Um, I've got my, my little SS pin and I've got my khakis and I'm ready to go. And like, they, they're trying to be taken seriously. And it's because the alt-right is extremely aware of, of the power of branding. And they're aware of all these stereotypes that exist about racists. That, um, you know, there's this, there this image I saw when I was a kid that said, like, it's like a picture of four brains. And there's like a white brain, black brain, Asian brain. It was great, you know. Um, and then like a tiny little brain. And the tiny little brain said racist. And it reflects this kind of overall sort of superficial narrative um, in the United States that, that racists are, are idiots. And so in contrast, they want to say like, no, look, we are middle class. We are clean cut. We're, you know, we're the nice guy that you see on the bus. Um, we're the guy that you see at the gym. And that failed. Charlottesville did not work for them. But we still see this kind of hiding behind images and being very aware of how the public might perceive what they do. So over time, like coming back to the evolution of alt-right, I've also seen people calling themselves identitarians or um, just calling themselves nationalists. So taking on this like very broad um, kind of terminology. But um, I was watching a documentary, a PBS documentary about the Oklahoma City bombing um, because Timmy, Timothy McVeigh was a white nationalist. And, um, and I was kind of interested in seeing, you know, the, the difference. And I'm also like ideologically motivated attacks. It, it reflects a lot of what's going on right now. Um, I'm thinking the one that comes immediately to mind is like the Christchurch shooting, which was very like the shooter used um, these kinds of white nationalist manifestos in his, I think in the one he wrote. But anyway, um, so in like the 80s and 90s, there was a lot of white nationalist activity and a lot of it had to do with like gun rights um, and, and religious rights. And so around that time, there was like the, Ma the Waco disaster yeah. um, and there was Ruby Ridge. Um, I, I won't get into those in too much detail, but the kinds of groups organizing around that time um, the very, were very anti-government and they had names like you know, Aryan nations, the, the order, um, all of these kind of uh, terms that specifically and overtly evoke white nationalist identity politics. And so it, it struck me just how out front they were. And, you know, they were out in public, like screaming about being white and how, um, you know, whites were being oppressed by the government and all of this stuff. And in contrast, you know, the alt-right is hiding mostly online. Um, they're there aren't, there aren't that many people out there who are going out and showing their face um, and you know, publicly advocating for what they believe. They go out and they put on their normie mask and act like a regular person and will treat people with respect um, as, in as, far, as much as they can. And then when they come home, they become the keyboard warrior who's you know, red-pilling people um, with, with memes. Um. I want to ask you about something you said, which is interesting, because you talked about uh, a phrase you used was white nationalist identity politics. And what's interesting, of course, is that obviously there's an entire argument, and unfortunately, you hear this on both the right and the left, 
about how identity politics is like a problem, right? And we're never gonna get, like pe people on the right, I don't necessarily mean the alt-right, but people on the right tend to talk about how identity politics is a problem because you know, they, they don't like people who, what they're saying. <laughs> but then the people on the left are talking about, but they don't like hearing about identity politics because, and usually it's because they're talking about something more focused on like Marxism and stuff like that. Now I'm not really disagreeing with that, but uh, <laughs> it's interesting that, you know, identity politics has mostly been tagged with people talking about marginalization when all of these groups are doing identity politics. It's, most yes. politics is identity politics. It's just, yes. um, it, it, it's just, are you talking about, you know, your own identity or are you talking about it's an issue like, I don't know, uh, taxi rights or something, I don't know. I'm just saying, like, <laughs> it's either about, if it's about people, it's gonna be about identity politics. And right. that's just a, one of those language things where <laughs> we let them take it. <laughs> or, 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 or tar it as, as negative when it should be. Yes. And actually, it's um, one of the talking points that I had was about how, um, how the alt-right gets to do identity politics, like you say, while also pretending that they're not or pretending that it's somehow exceptional or different because uh, they're white. And... Um, one of the ways that they do that is actually co-opting academic language, especially like radical leftist type language. Um, so one of the examples I have here was, I think this was in 2017, um, but there was this coordinated campaign called It's Okay to Be White. And um, yeah, yeah, it was great. Um, I'm kidding. I'm sorry. You can't see my face, uh, listeners. But yeah, the the point of the of the kind of real life trolling campaign was to post images that said it's okay that simply said it's okay to be white and you know it was this um provocative trolling technique because of course if you remove the signs you're saying oh it's not okay to be white uh therefore proving their point and so for somebody who has um I don't want to say limited critical thinking skills. I'll be generous and say um, somebody who not exercising critical who's not exercising critical thinking skills. It's one of those surface level gotcha things that that immediately proves their point. Um, and this is what they do all the time: is they set up something ridiculous, a ridiculous claim, um, and then you know, uh, baffled people on the left try to get in and explain why this is wrong. And it takes so long that. Um, all of your normies get bored and leave. Whereas like the alt-right and I would say um, fascist leadership in general always has very, very simple messages to and simple solutions to problems that have been developing over literally hundreds of years. I mean, that's, that's why it works, right? It's just, yeah. it's simple. They, uh, they're, their game plan is not very, uh, layered i would say what they're doing is layered but yeah. the uh you know the, like their their goals are not they have a very straightforward goal yes um, and we and it, it's a shame we're at a point where they think that nationalism is something that people will be like okay you know um because <laughs> you're like i don't know about that one um it's kind of the definition of fascism right but um so like uh you're thinking about where things are now and maybe I know I'm 
we're mostly talking about white supremacists, but you know, you've mentioned a little bit about the, the incel community and, and where is the uh, intersect between the two? You know, what uh, are there words that both groups use? I know they're not necessarily modified mm. groups, but you know what I mean, that people doing both things use. You talked about red pilling and that's more about the, you know, men's rights things, but it certainly, as you say, leads to this sort of stuff as well. So. Yeah, so one of the things that um, that makes this kind of work very frustrating is that part of of the memeing slash propaganda slash trolling machine is appropriating symbols that were innocuous before. So um, if you're somebody who liked using Pepe the Frog memes, you'll notice that you cannot really post a Pepe the Frog meme without uh, it really drawing or invoking this white nationalist association. And so they kind of like taint things with their ideology to try and reappropriate those symbols. And so they accomplished a pretty big hoax where they did the same thing with the okay sign, where um, a bunch of people uh, got right wing politicians and like talking figures to make a little okay sign. And then it got picked up um, by the media. Uh, But I am. Oh, I actually realized so that they really did do that just to mess with people. Yeah, because they, they wanted to say, "Look at these hysterical liberals. They'll make they'll make this into a, to anything they want." Because all of this is like flipping. It's 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 like how my my younger sister and sorry Kiki if you're listening, but when we were little, she would say little naggy things that would get me really upset, and I had a terrible temper, so I would freak out. And and then you know I was the one who got in trouble, and that's a lot of what their online tactics do because they're not good faith actors. They're not interested in anything like truth or justice or, um, in fact, they thrive on inequity. That's exactly what they want. And they also thrive on truth being conceptualized as a fully relative concept. Um, and so what they're trying to do is persuade you that, that their narrative uh, better reflects reality than, than the the ongoing um, narrative that we're part of now. It's kind of like a, I don't want to say it's a side reality because that gives too much credence to their like cognitive state, but it like. Sounds like red pill. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's what we were going to talk about is like um, words that are shared. Yes. So red pill being like the perfect example um, for those of you who are lucky enough not to know um, in, in the film, the matrix uh, Neo takes the red pill, which reveals to him, you know, the truth that, uh, humanity is being preyed upon by this larger entity. Uh, notice it's a perfect storyline that matches with what the alt-right is saying. Um, and so they, a lot of um, their, their kind of propagandistic techniques involve comparing what they, what they project as the, the white nationalist narrative onto these like movie narratives and story narratives, um, which is a really, so the matrix thing represents that kind of tendency. But aside from that, you still see, sometimes you see references to like Chad's and Stacy's, which is oh, a very yeah. thing. Yeah. That's a little bit rarer because um, the kind of hyper macho white masculinity that the alt-right espouses um, doesn't leave a lot of room for uh, <laughs> uh, not being attractive to women, I suppose, or not conceiving yourself as somebody attractive to women. Um, I think of He's trying to put toys away, but then he goes and finds them, and then he's <laughs> out, and I'm like, "Go to sleep, man." Like, just uh, take a nap. I did not. I did not tire him out of that. Um, <laughs> so, do people? I mean, 
I'm getting off topic, so I need to get it together. What is it? Um, to people who are who have like who are in the whole red pilling thing, and that you know it tends to lead to to a lot of misogynistic behavior. Obviously, yeah. Do they ever just do they ever consider or? Just think about the fact that that movie was written by two trans women. Like, do they think is that like part of? This? I'm just, I'm just wondering, like, if that's even part of what. Like, I'm just saying. I I wish there's there's so many levels of cognitive dissonance throughout all of this and on every level. It it's it's incredible. <laughs> um, it's amazing how these uh, how how these narratives can be you know co-opted for very reactionary racist ends um because that is not like because the matrix you know was not a reactionary story it was you know it was a tale about techno fascism right. and um it's it's wild it's same with incels actually the term incel was coined by a, a woman and now um this the online presence of of incels is just so deeply misogynistic and and we've seen it end in violence i mean like yeah, Roger yeah. being the obvious example, but like uh, what, what really bothers me about all of this is no matter what kind of, I imagine the alt-right of sphere to be kind of like one of those giant overlapping Venn diagrams where there's like a little bit of connection, um, but like there's not really, there's like maybe a small core that's all of those things, but some people are more interested in the gender politics and other people are more interested in race. And the, the alt-right Christians are much more anti-Muslim. Um, and sometimes, like, and you do see a lot of overlap. Um, but it's not always clear, especially when there's not an obvious way to see how these people interact with one another, which is one of the drawbacks of internet research um, and looking at, you know, anonymous or anonymized webs, web spaces. Yeah, I guess that's part of the issue where I... Um... You, you can you're just following people's screen names around or, or, or avatars or wow it's not their 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 handles or their usernames to find out what what they're saying and I imagine it makes the research somewhat difficult because you, you, it's all you know uh, discourse analysis and, and document analysis and things like that which is valuable it's just different um, yeah and where sorry oh. go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, though, like, in some ways, it it is um, almost helpful because so much of linguistic theory and behavioral theory is done from the perspective of face-to-face -face interaction. And we're now in an era where people can interact totally anonymously, especially if you're, you know, going through Tor browsers and things like that. Um, and so it's also the internet in some ways radically redefines what interaction is and what reality is. Um, which I guess adds to the theoretical interest, even though it's uh, politically very scary. So, I mean, is the solution, you know, to all this, is it going to be like, because they shut down one website, obviously many still exist, but if you shut down one, they create another one, you know? You know, and obviously, okay, you can deplatform this guy, and then another guy goes over here. So, like, <laughs> what, what, I mean, I'll ask in a moment what, what, you know, individuals can do, but like what can actually be done aside from, you know, changing government, but, uh, <laughs> right. you know, you know, we'll see about that. 
but um <laughs> like just from the like just in the internet perspective like what what they they're just going to keep spreading until what until what you know yeah i mean it this is this is the worst part um because i don't have answers that <laughs> that work um because part of it is is recognizing that for example that humans aren't fundamentally rational creatures for example that like i'm i'm privileged enough from an educational perspective to know that um the idea that humans are rational is a myth that came out of the enlightenment and a theory that pervades our entire educational system misleading people to believe that you can reason with anyone and that in this marketplace of ideas um, through free discourse and debate that that people will be convinced but that's only if you're dealing with good faith actors and yeah. these people are acting in bad faith they will espouse white nationalist talking points very sincerely and in very concise language meant to persuade and then when you say what are you talking about they'll turn around and be like no i'm just trolling you you're just a you're just sensitive and so this deep layer of like irony shields them from ever being held accountable for the beliefs that they're trying to circulate. And um, I think part of the answer is, you know, calling it for what it is, not, not playing the game where they get to kind of budge around the facts of reality and then we're left to try and explain why they're wrong. Um, but it leaves us in kind of a tough position because what are you supposed to do? Um, and it's not, it's not clear to me at all. I mean, it's sort of like, I think of it like trying to argue with Eric Cartman. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, you can't really win an argument with him, but he's going to keep talking. So, like, you can't just ignore him either. You know, like, right. he's, he's still going to be there doing what he's doing. Uh, and if you try to deeply engage in an argument, you will lose because there's no way to really win that argument. I, I I think that there's, you know, I, I read a lot of narratives about how I was a white nationalist and now I'm not, and here's what happened. And it's certainly valuable. I'm glad that the people stopped doing that. Um, and I think, on the other hand, it, it, um, people think, well, we can just fix that. Um, we, we can just, if we just, you know, we just show them some love. It's like, eh, maybe a few years ago, before they got, like, like maybe before they got that far in, you know, that might have helped. But at a certain point, I don't really know. I mean, yeah, okay, people might need some, you know, they might need professional help or something like that. But uh, there's not necessarily going to be a professional treatment for everybody who's in there. I don't just mean in terms of the medical system. I just mean in terms of just like not everyone's going to be diagnosed with something. Just right. because they espouse the hateful views does not mean that they necessarily have some illness. A, but it won't be because of <laughs> Yeah. And I'm, th I'm very against uh, discourse that positions prejudice as a type of sickness because it takes responsibility off of the individual. Um, just like just like how people who join cults aren't mentally ill a lot of the time. In fact, like lots of successful people and otherwise well-adjusted people join cults. And it's because they offer 
ideological systems that bridge all the gaps that you're seeing. Um, and so like, if you are not really interested in really like working with historical detail, for example, it's much easier to just say, there's a new world order of Illuminati who control everything and we have no choice. It's a, it's a cognitive shortcut. And by portraying people as ill or as though um, they have compromised faculties for being part of this, this intense group think, you know, you're missing the, the very real social processes that push people into this way of thinking in general. Yeah, I think that, um, I mean, I know why people do it because they want to, first of all, they think, well, you know, if they're sick, they can be not sick, right? Mm -hmm. Because if someone is sick, theoretically, all they have to do is be not sick and then it'll go away. Then they'll be cured. Um, <laughs> and so, I mean, like I get that, that impulse because it's a lot scarier, the reality that no, <laughs> like they're doing this because they want to. Like it's not, you know, these, not all, but many of them are adults um, with perfectly, you know, calibrated faculties and they're doing things incorrectly, but they are doing things that humans, this is just what is the version of what humans have always been doing. It's just this is the media. You know, this, yeah. this is the path to it. There's no time at which fascism was not popular, it's, you know, except for maybe the time before it was called fascism because it didn't have a name yet. But, you know, but this sort of thing is not, it, I, I get really mad when I hear people, and it's pretty much always white people, saying, what is the country coming to? And I'm just like, yeah. It was literally never <laughs> not this way. Yeah. Uh, like, it's like, it wasn't quite as easy for people to talk about it. Like, that's true. And that's not this country, that's the world. I mean, that's just, you know, but it's true that the, the rapid fire connections are, are, are you know, a, a newer thing. And the things spreading in the way that they do and the speed with which they do is yes. new. That's what's new. The ideas are not new. No, not at all. And I think it's important that we, we have to be both let me both optimistic and pessimistic, I think. Because like, pessimistic, because if you even think about it, anything like critical race theory or anything like that, we, this, this, the fight's never gonna end. Right. <laughs> but just because it's never gonna end doesn't mean you don't fight. Right. I saw an article today, well, I saw it today, I don't know if it came out today. Someone was saying that because um, they're calling it all those de deaths of despair, right? Um, throughout parts of the country, how um, there's a lot more addiction, uh, suicide, and things like that. Yeah. The, they theorized in the article, they said a study says, and we both know, however many studies we've read, when you see an article that the study says, I bet you that study did not say that. <laughs> <laughs> like that study did not say that. <laughs> Because it would not have been published if it had said that. <laughs> Thrown out. Um, because, you know, the, studies does not, the study does not say to disprove that. No, you did. You said that in your headline, is what you said. Um, but the extrapolation from the data of the study 
was saying that um, that these people were feeling a loss of social stature, right? Or they were fearing a loss of social stature. And my dad has this uh, email group where he just emails his friends and me <laughs> articles about like society. And I said, in response, I said, well, I don't necessarily, I mean, they, should, they could be fearing that. They could be. On the other hand, like, if, if, if fearing, you know, a lack of social stature was going to immediately lead to death, then, you know, I don't know how we're still here. So, <laughs> like, God. You know, we would have given up a long, like literally, it's 400 years this year. I right? like, like, we would have given up a long time. Like, don't you think we'd see about, you know, a, a thousand more women serial killers? Yeah. Uh, if, yeah. if it's, if it's uh, oppression that directly produces these things. Right. This <laughs> idea that, that um, you know, if we just let them have more power, then everything, you know, they'll just turn things around. But I think what what they're fearing, there's this nugget, I think, of recognition in there, where I think they recognize how poorly they treat others because they can't conceptualize what it would be like for someone in power not to mistreat people. So they think, if they lose power, which they're not, but let's say they think if they lose power, then they're going to end up in the same position as everyone else, and they can't deal with that. Whereas I don't think that the people who are oppressed necessarily do that. <laughs> I think they just want to be left alone, you know, be able to do yeah. what they want to do. And I don't know. I, I mean, so to sort of tie off the knot here, yeah, I think we have to be both optimistic and pessimistic, like I said, because I don't think these people aren't going to go anywhere. The, the, yeah. the, the websites will go, this one will shut down, another one will open. This guy will be in charge, another one. Well, it's always guys, obviously. Um, they yeah. like to use women. Uh, the alt right was really into Tulsi Gabbard for a minute because she would be like the perfect. Uh, I'm, I'm going to be a little crass, but like the perfect beige vehicle, that's like a woman. So yeah. it's like, she can do all the things that like, it's not the hardcore white nationalists, but like the more, um, the kind of, I guess, moderate alt-right, uh, that seems, that doesn't sound right. But, um, you know, they were really into her because again, like a perfect vehicle because they won't trust us. They won't trust, like everybody, everybody in the whole world hates white men now. So we're going to have this woman of color represent us instead. Uh, it's, it's a whole mess um yeah. one of oh sorry no i was gonna say she, she's got some weird stuff going on there with Assad and all that and i'm not sure what's oh yeah anyway also not to not to make this all about cults but also tulsi gabbard was in a cult um but yeah. like actually yeah a hindu cult um but one thing I wanted to bring up too, because it relates back to your point about this kind of sense of losing power. And of course, like um, with, with power, it, it waxes and wanes. And of course, if you're somebody who's used to being way above the threshold, you know, coming even close to the threshold, it seems like a huge downgrade. Um, and I think the alt-right kind of jumps in because there is this, 
regardless to how much I sympathize with this thought, there is this contingent of, of men who feel very guilty for being men, or they feel like they're being made to feel guilty for being white men. And I, yeah, I know, but um, the alt-right, you know, it hones in on that little insecurity and they're like, you know why they hate you? It's not because of, of history or, you know, capitalist systems of domination. It's actually because whites are just too good. Um, white men are just too smart and too compassionate and too physically gifted that ugh, everybody just wants us to go away. And so it's like this almost like a narcissistic um, rebound from from the ego hit provided by, you know, a general cultural trend towards acknowledging the fact that that people of color and women and, and queer people and exist um, and and have something important to offer our society. I think that um, some people say that the solution to this when people are younger before they get indoctrinated or whatever is to teach people more about other groups. They should certainly be taught about other groups. Obviously the way our history and so forth is taught is just terrible but I think what that you talk about this sort of it's not just that they feel guilty, it's that before they feel guilty, I think they feel unsettled, you know, about mm, their yes. white and their maleness, right? Or whatever group we're talking about in this, right? So they, they, you know, when they're five, they don't really feel guilty, right? But at a certain point, they feel like, you know, they, they feel uncomfortable in some way. It's not bad. The problem is, while they're feeling uncomfortable, they get hit with either the message from society that, because people talking about whiteness do it poorly when they're trying to be anti-racist, they, they don't do it well. Um, so they start to feel guilty and defensive about that. And then from that point, you can go from guilty and defensive, so what should I do about it, to guilty and defensive and ah, <laughs> that's, when they, that's, when, that's, when, that's where the problem is. So I think that well, we're, whether we're talking about race or gender, sexuality or ability, developing a, a healthy identity, I think, is what is so rare. Um, and I certainly had to develop a healthier gender, class, ability, all the ways in which I have privileged identity. Um, and still developing identity, you know, um, and not feel like, uh, you know, being a part of the things that I have no choice in being a part of means that I am, you know, morally bankrupt or something like that. Um, and I think that that is what's lacking from what people need to be taught is how to develop healthy identities while being in a majoritized group. Yeah, because honestly, like, um, I guilt, um, especially um, guilt from the from a dominant social position, it's useless. Guilt is a, a useless emotion, for one, um, but it does nothing for anyone. And um, I think you hit it right on the head. And something that I feel like is very missing, especially, especially from linguistics, because linguistics likes to imagine itself as a very science-y um, discipline. But there's, a, there's an emotional dimension here. There's, we, we need to also analyze this in the context that like we 
have humans have basic needs um, in terms of survival and there are things about like emotions that that propel us to do things in certain ways and it's not enough to just say racists are scared or like ignorant people are scared because bigots aren't just scared they're also angry but it does kind of come from this place of a feeling unsettled like you said and it's how you respond to that that unsettling and so you know I was in a space when I had one, I, I was lucky enough to have um, a friend deal with all of my white bullshit when I was an undergrad. Um, and I had a lot of uncomfortable conversations that made me challenge kind of where I was at. But I had to really, really step back and notice that I felt threatened by it. And why did I feel threatened? Why did I feel like I had to, um, why did I feel guilty? For example, when it's, there's nothing you can, you as an individual could do to change history or change anything by yourself, but by acknowledging where you're at <laughs> and understanding history and understanding where, where you fit into all of that is, is crucial. And you can't, I don't, I wish there was a way to, I wish I knew better ways to push people who are at that unsettled point into critically examining themselves instead of going to this place of, they must hate me because I'm the best. Yeah, I think I think that inflection point um, uh, is it needs to be studied. I think a little bit, not just what leads people down this dark path, but I think everybody. None of this is innate, right? So yeah. everybody at some point, even if they came to a, and I'm speaking about race, but it's the same gender and other things, um, came to a healthy racial identity perspective, you know, where you're working against racism and understanding its systemic, you know, uh, impacts and manifestations. Well, that didn't just, didn't just happen, right? You didn't just read a newspaper and then you're like, oh, racism is bad. Okay. Um, but like really developing, like, what, what is my role in this? And what can I do about it? And also what are the power structures? You know, all this deeper stuff that is always evolving and that you can learn more about. And, um, it's just not, we don't have a common, to bring it to a final point talking about language, we don't have enough of a common language for a healthy white racial identity um, yeah. in the country because it is so toxic to talk about your pride in being white. Because pride is the wrong word, it's the point. But we need a word between pride and shame you know, that, that where you can uh, just be a white person and it means all the things it means, but it doesn't necessarily prevent you from taking action because what, that's what guilt does. Guilt is, is a paralytic, right? You know, you're, it's, uh, you are sort of locked in by your guilt and you can't do anything. If you're just sitting around feeling guilty, you're feeling guilty, you're feeling guilty, you're feeling guilty. Well, you're going to be sitting around feeling guilty for like 20 years. <laughs> it's like nothing, nothing is going to happen. Um, and you're just, and I think a lot of people just spend, because I think that's where so many people say, you know, I don't mean the outright people, but I mean like most, you know, this sort of big fuzzy, what Dr. King's white moderate, right? The big fuzzy middle where they talk about, they just sit there in the guilt like, I don't want to be like the bad people. 
<laughs> I don't want to be one of the bad people. What do and I it, need not to be the bad people? You know? it, it leads to all these kind of like artificial um, ways of speaking too. Like, I mean, I think we've all met that that kind of fakey ally who like seems to be coming from a place of um, not really understanding. I don't, I don't know if you've ever had someone apologize. I've had someone apologize to me for being heterosexual, like completely sincerely. And it's kind of this funny, I don't want to be mean and say it's a cop out, but it's this way of like, I don't have to really analyze my behavior. I just, I just stop as soon as I feel uncomfortable. And I don't really think about why I'm uncomfortable in the first place. Why does this conversation make me uncomfortable? Like what, what am I, where's that fear coming from and where am I feeling threatened by this? And it's often because there are things that we notice, um, you know, as a white person, I did internalize the ways that um, I was treated relative to other people. And it's very hard to, especially in a, you know, a neoliberal ideological system in which we're all supposed to be the masters of our own fate. Um, and so everything comes down to the individual. It's very it feels um, very, very threatening to to think that you have something that you didn't earn. But that's, I don't know if that's the right way of engaging with it. Like you said, there needs to be a, a healthier way of saying like, this is, this is a history. Um, the only reason that I'm able to live where I live right now is because I had ancestors who participated in the chattel slave economy. Uh, they were given preferential treatment in terms of ho- housing. They were, you know, allowed to settle lands that didn't belong to them. And all of those things enable me to be sitting here right now on this podcast with you. Um, And I think that it's a really challenging reality, but it's the only way that white people will be able to, one, just be more effective um, if we want to be allies. And two, like, wait, I don't know if I have a two here. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's really it, right? Oh, I I remember what I was going to say, which was just like, um, I'm very encouraged by the amount of people, uh, white people moving into whiteness studies as a result. I really think that it's time to turn our lens of inquiry onto onto whiteness and these systems that we call unmarked um, because they structure our lives in such deep ways. Um, And it's nice to see like, people moving that direction I suppose I think that um, so much research is white people pouring over people of color and turning people of color to the world and be like look at these people of color even the ones who are well-meaning are just like look at these people of color Uh, (laughs) and I'm trying myself to do to be a researcher of color um, and looking at different parts of whiteness. But we'll see how many of you really want to talk to me. 